Ian is a dear friend, but he's part of the apostolic team who gives oversight to our church. And so our church is linked up with other churches in, in America, um, Cross Point Living Word, other churches in other states. But we're also linked up with churches across the world. And so LifeLink, which is the organization that we're a part of, oversees churches in, in Great Britain and Africa and Europe and India and all over the world. And so we've got the privilege this morning of hearing from Ian. And Ian knows a lot more about you than you realize. We, me and Ian have had no, just countless conversations and waiting in prayer and emails and just going back and forth about this church. And so I feel like as Ian comes up here, um, Ian brings the love and care for you that has been in his heart for the past year and a half. And so he's not just coming, coming in cold and fresh and, okay, let's try to figure this church out. He knows us, and he loves us, and he's, he's, he's waited on God for us. And so Ian is a gift to us. Um, he's traveled 4,000 miles across the vast oceans to be with us this morning. And so let's welcome Ian and give thanks for his gift to us. Thank you very much, Johnny. Thank you. Am I on? Yeah. Great. Thank you so much, Johnny. I appreciate that. Thank you, Frank. Thank you very much. Well, as Johnny has said, um, it sounds a, a little bit spooky, doesn't it, to say he knows more about you than you realize. It's like I've got some spy satellite <laughs> lurking above Chicagoland or something like that. It, it, it isn't really like that. It's just as, as Johnny said that we have been dialoguing, dialoguing together as leaders for uh, quite some years um, about the prospect of planting out new congregations. We started with Crown Point and, and planted the Cross Point Church. We're carrying on with Highland, and we mean to go on. Uh, we mean to keep on planting churches across Chicagoland. So if that's the vision that excites you, you're in the right church. If that turns you off, then find somewhere else, because we're going for it. I really am delighted to be with you, however, for the very first time uh, this Sunday, uh, but I can now say that this is my second service, the second service I've had in Mercy Hill Church. And uh, I appreciate the sunshine that you've arranged for me. As I've told many people, it's the nicest summer I've had so far. I've had to come to Chicagoland in the fall to get my son, which is wonderful. Uh, but I have some more important things to say to you this morning than just talk about the weather. So if you have your Bible with you, I would invite you please to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30. And I would like to share a few thoughts from the life of David. I know you've been studying the Psalms. It uh, looks like an excellent series of teachings over these few weeks. I'm not this morning going to be talking about a particular psalm or a bunch of psalms, but rather the author of many of them. Of course, not all, but David is attributed as being the author of quite a few of these psalms. And David figures very large in the story of God's dealings with us. He clearly is a big part of the Old Testament, but as you know, he features in the New Testament as well. Uh, is mentioned in a number of places, and Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, traces his lineage back to King David. So he's a very, very important figure in the story of God's people, and we can learn a great deal about God's heart for us by looking at the story of David. Now, it's a long story, and clearly in the time available to me this morning, 
and my eyes on that clock. I can see it very clearly. So thank you so much for keeping me on track. Um, I can't possibly go into great detail about all aspects of his life. But the quick reader's digest account would go something like this. David was a young shepherd boy minding his own business on the hills when a prophet called Samuel turned up at the family home, the home of his father, Jesse. God had prompted Samuel to look for the next king of Israel. Now, the thing is, there was already a king on the throne, King Saul, but he disobeyed God and God told the prophet, go find the next one. So he was directed to the household of Jesse. He looked at all these fine, strapping young men. I'm sure that uh, some of you guys in the room today could have qualified as such. But sadly, not one of them was the man God was looking for. So he inquired of Jesse, is there somebody else? And almost as an afterthought, Jesse says, well, there's young David on the hillside, but kind of in brackets, surely you don't want him. Ha ha. Surely he does. So he gets sent for and lo and behold, he is the man of God that Samuel feels a witness to. He prays and prophesies over him, anoints with all oil, and he, be, he is to become the next king of Israel. Trouble with that scenario is there's no vacancy. There's already a king on the throne. But the next thing we find is David being a mighty warrior. And in chapter 16, the Bible describes David as a mighty warrior and a worshipper. And that twin characteristic is something we need to take note of because God wants us to be not only those who worship, but those who do warfare. And that twin element has got to be melded together a bit like, if you will, the word and the spirit coming together to make us full orbed in who we are in Christ. Where those who worship the Lord and on occasions like this, it's so good to be doing that together. But the whole point of that is that we worship the Lord, we honor him, we strengthen ourselves, we strengthen one another. And then we go from this place into the mission field as mighty warriors to tear down all the works of the evil one, to bring good news into the lives of the people around us and to take back ground. Amen. Amen. So we're worshiping warriors. And then David, this worshiping warrior, goes into the situation with Goliath. There's the people of God shivering with fear in their battle groups, doing nothing. David turns up, having given a packed lunch to his brothers, and he says, what's going on here? Why aren't you fighting this big, ugly brute? So they say, well, well, after you. So David says, fine. And you know the story. He defeats Goliath. He throws a stone at him. He kills him. Then he takes Goliath's sword, chops his head off. And he, of course, he's the hero of the hour and is brought to the attention of King Saul, who invites him to live in the royal palace. Well, all things uh, are working together for good. So it would seem now. So he's got the word of God over his life. He's in the palace. He's got the king's attention. Hey, we're on a roll here. Unfortunately, things begin to go seriously wrong. He has great success. He is famous throughout the land. Trouble with that is Saul doesn't like the song he's hearing in the nation. The people are singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. And a jealous hatred starts consuming Saul and David better start watching his way. Well, make a long story short, 
It doesn't work out too well. He gets thrown out of the palace. He's banished. He has several attempts at trying to appease King Saul, who momentarily repents, so it would seem. But he's hardly repenting, but he's throwing spears at young David again. And eventually David gives up trying to bring some sense to Saul. Interestingly, during that season, he has a couple of opportunities to kill Saul. Circumstances come about that mean that Saul comes so close to him and is so defenseless that David could have killed Saul. But there's a very important principle at work here that David doesn't do that because he doesn't want to push and strive to achieve the purpose of God. He wants the Lord's timing to be the Lord's timing. And that's a very important principle and it's woven into the life story of David and it speaks to us that we may have a real conviction about what God wants for us individually, our family or a church, but we must know the Lord's timing as we go from phase to phase in the unfolding of that. We're not here to try and, what can I say, plot and plan and, and force things to happen according to our human wisdom because if we do that we usually almost inevitably mess up a bit like the people of israel in the very beginning when they said we want a king and they got saul wasn't the best plan but god gave in if you like to what they wanted but he was getting them back on course with david now things go actually from bad to worse remember this is the guy with the promise of god over his life This is the guy who had the acclamation of the people. This is the hero of the hour, the great military commander coming back to cheering crowds, you know, a a ticker parade. And now he's banished. He's given up trying to persuade Saul to listen to sense. And we find him as we come to this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 30, we find him out with the Philistines. And a bizarre thing is going on in chapter 29. It says that the Philistines gathered all their forces at a place called Aphek and Israel camped nearby by the spring in Jezreel. And where is David? David, this anointed man of God, this man with a destiny to be king over Israel, is among the Philistines offering to fight the people of God. Things have gone really wrong. What on earth has happened to this story? Well, I'm afraid it's going to get even worse yet. The king is happy for David to fight with him, but the generals aren't. And they dismiss David and his men because they're concerned about their loyalty. And they send them back to a place called Ziklag that they've been given by the king of the Philistines to live in together with their wives and children. On the third day, it says in chapter 30, verse 1, David and his men reach Ziklag. But horror of horrors, they find the Amalekites have come. They've sacked the city. They've burned it. They've taken away their wives and their children and anything of any value. Could it get any worse? Yes, it's just about to. Because David's mighty men who've stayed loyal to him up to this point, even with all the misfortunes and the difficulties they faced, now turn against him. 
And in verse 6 it says, David was greatly distressed, and I'm not surprised, because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. This is the pits. Everything has gone wrong. I don't know how you would be feeling at this moment, but I think David was feeling pretty miserable. What on earth has happened? We're now talking approximately a decade later from the time when Samuel the prophet gives the great promise of God. So the great promise of God comes, a decade later has gone by more or less, and nothing seems to have happened except it's got worse and worse and worse and worse. And you know there are times in our life where we go through seasons where we, we may have a real sense that God has spoken to us in the word through the scriptures, maybe prophetically, genuine, attested, prophecy, not flaky stuff. But it just seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse. And the circumstances around us do not really seem to equate to anything like what we imagined. And what we do at such times is absolutely critical. In fact, what David didn't know was God was using this decade to make David ready to walk into his destiny. And that's what God does when he postpones the immediate fulfillment of promises that he's made over our lives, whether promises that we share in general with the people of God or maybe very specific promises. He is preparing our hearts. He's drawing us closer through circumstances. And in this verse, verse 6 of chapter 30, it says critically at the very end, and in the NIV it's not as clear as it could be it's better in the other versions like the new american the english standard version it says david but david strengthened himself in the lord his god david strengthened himself in the lord his god and that's really the heart of my message this morning for you i'd like to spend a few moments talking about strengthening ourselves in the lord our god of course I am not in any way going to be comprehensive. There's so much more one could say, but I'm going to focus on just one aspect of that for you this morning. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And you know what? Within a matter of months, within a matter of months, he was declared king over the southern tribes at a place called Hebron. And and from there, he eventually became king over all of Israel at Jerusalem. So this was a critical point in the story. This was the turning point. This was when something happened in David that got him ready to inherit his destiny. And I believe there are people in this room today for whom this is the word of the Lord. This is exactly what you need to hear. Well, David strengthens himself in the Lord, his God. There's much more I could say about that, but I'm going to move on to focus on just one aspect of it. And as an immediate consequence of this change in David, we find for the first time in this season of being in Ziklag, he inquires of God. Beforehand, we read that he's just gone out and done, done various raiding things and, 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 and plundered the Philistines, pretended to be their friend, but gone back and forth. He just kind of got on with what he knew to do because he was a mighty warrior. But now this worshiper comes back in again. 
Now he's back on track. He calls Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, and he says, bring me the ephod. And basically he's asking God. He's coming before God. And that is the first evidence of what, it, what happens when we strengthen ourselves in God. We seek his face. There almost was nothing going for David at this point. It's like, could anything else go wrong? Really, there's nothing I can think of, Lord. And then he turns. He reorientates and he seeks God. And he asks God, what shall he do? And God answers his questions. He says, yes, pursue the Amalekites and you'll overtake them. Let me just make a point here, a very interesting point. You know, the only reason that David had to fight this battle was because Saul hadn't obeyed God years previously. Because God told Saul to eliminate the Amalekites. And if you read in the previous chapters, you'll see that because of that disobedience, God said to Samuel the prophet, Saul has disobeyed me to the point where I can no longer endorse him as king. And you must choose another. And now, because Saul didn't deal with the Amalekites, all these years later, David has to. And I want to say this. Sometimes in our lives, we need to deal with stuff. We have to deal with stuff. We have no choice to deal with stuff because those who went before us didn't. But that's okay. But the thing is, it's not your fault. But God will help you through that. But there is a lesson For us in this, which is very simple, it's vital that we obey God. It's vital that we get done in our life and generation the things that God has told us to do. We believe with all our heart that God has told us to keep preaching the gospel and planting churches in the greater Chicagoland area. Now, if we were not to obey that, if we were just to dilly-dally around and, and, and shovel off that responsibility, you know what? God's going to have to raise up somebody else to do it. They're going to have to fix stuff that we never got to. And there may be things in our life which need adjusting. Well, let's get on and do it. Or else we'll create problems for others to have to fix later on. Well, the story goes on that... As you'll see, God instructs David to pursue the Amalekites and promises victory. And then I want to focus now on just a little cameo between David and another person who is, is really, it's a very interesting dialogue. I'll read from verse 11. The mighty men of David, they found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, to whom do you belong and where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite, My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Kerethites and the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, Can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, 
Swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master and I will take you down to them. Well, that's exactly what happens. They strike this deal. They're both faithful to it. And David is led down to where the Philistines are, sorry, the, uh, the land of the Philistines to where the Amalekites are carousing, probably drunk, celebrating their great victory and all that they've got away with. Of course, as we know, they're not going to get away with it. David is about to surprise them. But I want to focus on this little cameo, this little conversation between King David, sorry, between David and these, this Egyptian slave. He asked him two questions. He asked him, to whom do you belong and where do you come from? Those two questions, of course, were between two people in history. But I'd like to suggest to you that they they roll down through the centuries and they speak to us today. It's as if the Holy Spirit is asking you through me today, to whom do you belong and where have you come from? Without pushing this too far, Egypt is often used as a type or a symbol of, of the sin-soaked world in the scriptures. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, the Apostle Paul makes this wonderful statement. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been transferred for a fee that is priceless. I know this is the football season here in the United States. It's also uh, the football season in the United Kingdom. It's the same word, but different game. It's soccer. But I know at the beginning of the football season and the end of the football season, and there's a little gap in the middle, I believe, where clubs can transfer players. They can buy players from one club and transfer them to another. And of course, all the clubs are competing for the very best players. And all the clubs are looking for finance to, to put into that process because they want to make the highest offer to get the best player. And equally, the players that are, shall we say, on the downward curve of their career are also transferred. And if you get told you're going to be transferred from one club to another for, say, $5,000, that's not good. But if someone's willing to pay $20 million for you, that's a very good indication of how you're prized. And so the fee that's paid out is in direct correlation to the value that's being put upon this football player. Well, just think of the value that God puts upon us because he, his trans, our transfer fee to bring us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son was Jesus Christ, his son. And I say that because that should really be such an encouragement to you. If the devil comes along and says, you're not really worth very much, you've blown it, you know, you're really not very good. Uh, just tell him to get lost. You can tell him to go to hell. It's all right, actually. That's the only person you can tell to go to hell. You mustn't say that to each other because that's naughty. But you can tell, you can tell the devil to go to hell because that's where he belongs. Don't listen to his lies because God has put such a price on us. It cost him his son because the value 
of us to him is inestimable. It's priceless. That's the value God puts on you. And don't ever live lower than the dignity of a son or daughter of the living God. That's who we are. We can put our our head high. We can put our shoulders back. We can walk tall in the world. Whatever is happening, Jesus so valued us that he said yes to the Father. He would go on that cross to bring us from one club to another, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. To whom do you belong? I belong to God. I was once a slave of sin, now I'm a slave of righteousness, says the Apostle Paul. To whom do you belong? I belong to God. It speaks to identity. To identity. Who are you today? Are you just Ian Rawley? Are you just whatever your name is? Are you just defined by the job you do or the education you had or the amount of money in your bank account? To whom do you belong? I belong to God. Where did you come from? It speaks to thanksgiving. In the words of the old hymn, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. I don't know the kind of guy I would have become had I not found Christ or more accurately Christ found me in my teenage years. But, you know, I know that I would not be where I am now. And even if I'm so conscious of the fact that I'm not the guy I want to be ultimately. I thank God I'm not the guy I was. And I'm so grateful to the mercy and the grace of God. I was once lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. There's tremendous sense here in these two questions of our identity and our thanksgiving. We must of all people be grateful we must of all people be thankful and we must construct our sense of identity not from the circumstances around us and we must give ourselves to thanksgiving not based on what's happening to us remember it was over 10 years from samuel's anointing of david to David's ascent to the throne. And there must have been many, many days when David wondered to himself, what on earth is all this about? You know what? I was quite happy on that hillside. I didn't ask for this. I thought I was obeying God, but it's got harder and harder and more and more difficult and more and more crazy, actually, towards the end. And there was nothing in the circumstances around him that suggested that what Samuel had said was true but he strengthened himself in the lord his god i don't know all that that means but i think david came basically to the end of himself which is a good place to come the apostle paul asked god many times to remove things from him It's a certain thing. He doesn't explain what it is that he couldn't cope with. And and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And then the Apostle Paul, in this very personal letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, therefore, I will boast in my weakness. Because in my weakness is essentially what he's saying. I find the grace of God. And David came to the end of himself. And that's where he found God. And I think he must have gone back to the promise of the prophet Samuel. He must have 
reminded himself yet again of what he'd almost forgotten. And he came before God and he said, I will believe the precious and great promise of God. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, God has given us his precious and very great promises so that you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's critical that we understand what Peter is talking about. There's a great truth here. Let me be very clear. There's no question that as we call upon the Lord, as he works in our heart and we respond to his bidding, we can immediately come from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are immediately born again. And yet often the reality is that we have to move into the experience of that reality over a period of time. Which is why we don't all wake up every single day filled with joy, filled with thanksgiving, completely clear of our identity in Christ. We need to experientially come more and more and more into that reality. It doesn't need to be a hard process or a long process. But Peter says it's by these precious and very great promises that we become partakers of the divine nature And experientially, even though positionally it's immediate, experientially, it's through hearing, receiving, believing, confessing the promise of God and the promises of God that we walk in the goodness of what God's saying. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 4 verse 12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes even of the heart. It's powerful. And yet he, he says also in that same chapter, We've had the gospel preached to us, talking to Christians, just as the people of the Old Testament had But the message they had was of no value to them because they did not combine it with faith. And his warning is, unless we take the promises of God and combine it with faith, it can be valueless. We need to hear, receive, believe and confess. The word confess in both Latin, from which we get this word in English and in Hebrew, means the same thing. It means to speak in agreement with And confession is not primarily about giving a list of sins we've committed, although there's nothing wrong with that uh, meaning of it. But essentially what it really means is we agree with God. We agree with God. One of the meanings of the Hebrew word to meditate is mutter. And so it's like hearing, receiving, believing, confessing, muttering in faith the words of God. We see a lovely example of this in the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Just a young virgin girl and the angel Gabriel speaks to her. The most incredible things, the most amazing things. That she's going to give birth to a son when she's had no relations with her fiancé. And this baby is going to be the son of God. And it's incredible. It's mind-blowing. And yet she doesn't bat it away. She hears it and she receives it and she believes it and she says to the angel Gabriel let it be to your servant according to your word the very next chapter in chapter 2 of chapter uh, of, of the gospel of Luke we have the story of the 
shepherds on the hillside. The angels appear to them and they tell them of all that's going to happen and how Jesus is being born and is going to be the savior of all. And they come and they find Jesus and they talk to Mary and Joseph and those with them about these wonderful things. And it says specifically in chapter 2 verse 19 that Mary pondered these things in her heart. She heard, she received, she believed, she pondered, she muttered, she meditated on these things. Incredible things. A young, inexperienced girl. But she did it right. Be assured that whenever the word of God comes, it will always be tested. We have a a clear example of this in the life of Jesus. And it happened to Jesus. It will happen to us. In Matthew chapter 3, there's this wonderful story of Jesus being baptized in the River Jordan. And as he's coming up, there's an audible voice that he hears from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And immediately it says he's taken into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But the spirit bids him go. And after 40 days of fasting, the devil comes and speaks to Jesus. And the very first thing he says is, if you are the son of God, then do these things. The very thing that God has said to Jesus is the thing that's tested by the devil. It's only a replay of the Garden of Eden, isn't it? The the serpent comes along and says to Eve, well, did God really say that? Now, look at the contrast between Eve and Jesus. Eve's mistake is she starts dialoguing with the devil, who starts putting doubts in her mind. Compare Jesus, who doesn't even entertain the question, He just quotes the word of God to the devil. He doesn't entertain the question. He doesn't dialogue with the devil, unlike Eve. He simply says, it is written. And he quotes the word of God. He just dismisses the devil's accusations, questions, and underminings with the word of God. You know, Paul writes to Timothy as he's drawing towards the end of his life and ministry, in 1 Timothy 1.18, that Timothy is to wage warfare with the prophecies made concerning you. The scriptures tell us of how hands are laid on young Timothy and the elders pray and the word of God is brought to him. And later on in life, this mature, seasoned apostle of God is saying to someone who will carry on the baton, he's saying, wage warfare on the prophecies made concerning you. This is really exactly what I'm talking about. It's constructing our identity and sense of purpose. It's informing our thanksgiving, not on the circumstances of life, but on the word the Lord has given to us. And if we're to be such people, we'll be unshakable. Unshakable. In just a moment, we're going to take the bread and the wine together and as I draw to a conclusion I'd like to read a passage that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus it's interesting in this story you know that David not only recovered all the wives and all the children 
and all the plunder. He recovered more than what was stolen from him and his men and their families. He recovered also the plunder that the Amalekites had accumulated from their other raids as well. And he distributed it liberally to many people. And that's just a picture of the grace of God, the mercy of God in the gospel. As the old hymn writer said, for in Christ we gain more than ever we lost in Adam. We didn't simply get put back to the position of where we were when our original parents fell and sin robbed them of the blessing of God. We're put into Christ with all that we were supposed to become. And so in Christ we gain more than ever we lost in Adam. And here in the story, David recovers more than was ever lost. And God's restoration is always greater than mere recovery. And it may be that some of you feel that life, the enemy has robbed you of certain things. But let me tell you, the goodness and the grace of God is such that as you come to him, as you strengthen yourself in the Lord, as you do what I'm suggesting here as a way forward in life, you will find that God restores to you so much more than you lost, that restoration is greater than mere recovery. As I close, I would invite you just to, cl to close your eyes. And as a perfect summary of what I'm trying to say and as a wonderful introduction to the bread and the wine that we'll take together in just a minute. Imagine the Apostle Paul is not writing simply to the church in Ephesus, but he's writing to you, Mercy Hill, writing to you as an individual believer. And it's from chapter 1, verse 4 through 14. I'm going to read from the Message Bible just because it gives a slightly different perspective on some of the things that perhaps we're so familiar with in the more traditional versions. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross we are a free people, free of penalties and punishments, chalked up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we really are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living. 
part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. It's in Christ that you, once you heard the truth and believed it, this message of your salvation found yourselves home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. This signet from God is the first installment of what's coming, a reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us, a praising and glorious life, and even the railroad klaxons will celebrate it. Amen.